All right, uh, before we do our sermon, I'm going to go ahead and read the 51st Psalm, and uh, this is one of the most passionate psalms in the entire Bible. It is wonderful in what it details. This is to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is based on the incident of David committing adultery with another man's wife. He's the king of Israel. He took what wasn't his, and then he had the husband killed in battle to cover over what he did. And this is what he wrote when he was confronted with his own sin in the face of God. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem, then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. All right, our sermon today is going to be Genesis 42. It's verses 29 through 38, and it's entitled, Not Thinking Clearly in the Land of Canaan. Starting in the 29th verse, it says, Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who is lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me, take food for the famine of your households, and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more, and you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go... Then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. 
I want to explain, as I did for the past two sermons, that this is somewhat of an interim sermon on the way to a final destination. This is unlike the Jacob sermons, which were very clearly individual portions, and every one of them had a single future look or outlook. These sermons all tie together into one thing that is going to be culminated at the end when he is reconciled to his brothers. And so if you've missed some of the previous sermons, you may be a little lost. You can go back and watch them on YouTube. And this sermon, as well as uh, the last two, are still looking forward to something. So don't be uh, uh, you know, confused, but try to understand what's going on. I'll try to be clear in what I'm saying, but this is leading to something wonderful in the future. And it's exactly what we were looking at at in the prophecy update. It is God's great desire to have reconciliation with his people, his inheritance, Israel. But it cannot happen until certain things happen before that. And those are the things that we're seeing in these particular sermons. Many of the verses that we're going to look at today are a recap of what we've already seen. But we'll also see Jacob's response to those things. This is a man who has seen the Lord personally at least three times, and he's heard from the Lord even more than that. If any person in the Bible could claim, hey, I know that the Lord is on my side, it should be Jacob. Quite possibly the most intimate encounter with the Lord in all of the Old Testament was with Jacob as they wrestled in the night by the Jabbok River. He beheld the face of God in the form of the man and he prevailed as they fought. And yet in today's verses, it's as if he has lived his life entirely apart from God. The Lord has never been mentioned in this chapter, and the word God has only been mentioned twice. Once it was mentioned by Joseph, and the second time was by Jacob's sons, questioning why God allowed something so bad to happen to them. Not only did Jacob fail to see God's hand in these events of his own life, but he failed to teach his children that the events of their lives were being directed by God for their good. This is a portion of scripture which demonstrates abject failure and a complete lack of faith in the providence of God by God's people. What can we learn about this for our own lives is the question we should ask. Our text verse today comes from the 88th Psalm. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Selah. The psalmist, just like Jacob, was laid in a low pit, and he felt the heavy wrath of the Lord on him. But there is a difference between the two. Instead of whining about it, he talked to the Lord about it. Despite the horrors which engulfed him, he still found it possible to talk to the Lord through the trouble. Jacob, despite being God's chosen man, still has a way to go in the development of his faith and of his walk. It is from the Bible that we learn to do these things. His superior word is what guides us on this path. And so let's turn there again today. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may God, his glorious name, ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is recounting the journey. This is verses 29 through 34. Verse 29 says, Then they went to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying... Now, in the curious way that the Bible does these things, the name Jacob is used five times in this chapter. The only time that the name Israel is used is when speaking of the sons of Israel. In the next chapter, though, the name Israel is going to be used three times, and the name Jacob will not be used at all. There is Jacob, the deceiver, who is also being deceived, 
And then there is Israel who struggles with God. Jacob is still being deceived concerning his son Joseph, and he has no hope of seeing him again. And as we see through the end of this chapter, he is unwilling to let Benjamin go back to Egypt to rescue the family. It is Jacob, the man of flesh and blood, who is lost in the life of this world, and it is to him that his sons now return. Now, although it's not easy to tell the difference, observing why the name Jacob or why the name Israel, or both in one verse, is used, is always a good help in seeing what is going on in the life of the man and in the pictures that they point to concerning the people of Israel. To their father Jacob, they now take time to explain the details of their long trip down to uh, Egypt. Verse 30, the man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. The way the Hebrew is constructed in their sentence to Jacob emphasizes their feelings concerning the harsh treatment that they received. A literal translation would say, spoke the man, Lord of the land, with us hard things. Included in those hard things was the accusation that they were spies, which is something that they refuted, verse 31. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. And this is exactly what happened. Just as things occurred in Egypt, so they are telling their father now. Verse 32, we are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. And again, this is exactly how it happened with the exception of mentioning the missing brother first and then the youngest being with their dad in Canaan next. They have exactly repeated their conversation with Joseph. Now, I would suggest that the significance of the 10 brothers standing before Joseph and not being able to satisfy the Lord of Egypt who happens to be their brother, is that it pictures the current way that Jewish believers think that they are able to sanctify God in their rituals. Now, what does that mean? They have a requirement. Any Jewish synagogue, even to this day, has a requirement that 10 people are needed in order to make what is known as a minyan or an assembly. And this comes from a precept known as the Gezara Shavah, According to this rule, the Gazara Shabbat teaches that an assembly must be present when God is being sanctified. Now, what they mean by God being sanctified includes, for example, the public reading of Torah, which is the Bible. Their public reading of the Bible, or our public reading of the Bible, is forbidden under the precept without, least, without at least 10 people being present. So we wouldn't be able to do that if we didn't have 10 people sitting here. And that's the way it works in a synagogue. Continuing on with their explanation, the uh, Gazara Shavah teaches a great truth. Now listen to this. The power of each individual Jew. There can be a group of nine of the greatest Jews, men who complete all of the commandments, which is impossible, the Bible tells us that already, and understand the depths of the Torah's secrets, which is also impossible. We can never grasp fully the mind of God. Yet they do not have the ability to complete a minyan on their own. This is nine Jews meeting together. However, add to the group the simplest Jew, someone who perhaps cannot properly read his prayer, nor does he really understand what he is saying. Yet, when he walks into the room, he has now transformed the entire group and made them complete, a minyan. It is because of him that they are now able to recite those parts of the prayer that can only be read with a minyan. Never underestimate the potential of the individual Jew. 
And if you see right there what is happening in synagogues all over the world is that they are declaring their own righteousness by saying there are 10 of us and we are righteous before God in order to speak to him. And this is standard Jewish thought concerning approaching God. But I believe this pictures why the brothers were not accepted by Joseph. It is to show us that this belief is not acceptable. As a Christian and as a believer in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we can stand alone with him and we can be acceptable before God. We don't need numbers of 10, a thousand, or a million. When we stand with Christ, we are in right standing with God. And the reason why I brought this up now is because these brothers, the 10 brothers standing before Joseph, picture the Jewish people and specifically the leaders of the tribes still not recognizing their Lord, who is Jesus. As a group, the brothers were unable to satisfy Joseph and the same is true with the Minyan in the synagogues today. Until they stand with and acknowledge Jesus Christ, they cannot be pleasing to God. Thus, there is the need for Benjamin among them. There is the need for the son of the right hand, Jesus, among the Jews. We need to keep looking at these verses in the context of the church age. Joseph's brothers picture the tribes of Israel. Joseph pictures the Lord. During the church age, the brothers have been separated from Joseph, just as Israel today is separated from Jesus. That's going to end in the chapters ahead in Genesis, and that will end in the days ahead in human history. After the rapture, Jesus and Israel will be reunited. That is what the Bible teaches. Some wonderful day, Israel will receive their king. They will call on him, and to him they will, he will be seen. The glorious moment will cause all Israel to sing, and all the world will marvel at the glorious scene. Verse 33, then, then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me, take food for the famine of your households, and be gone. In this, they don't tell the whole story. They left out what originally happened. At first, all of them were to be imprisoned, and only one would go back to Canaan. After three days in prison, though, only one was left and the rest were allowed to go back. And they only said that the brother was left in Egypt, not that he was bound in prison. So you can almost hear their conversation before they get home. Dad is going to be so upset. We better not tell him what happened or he is going to flip his lid. So instead of giving all of the bad details, they tell him the truth without giving all of the information. So here's something for you to consider. Is it sin to withhold information when you're telling somebody something? And I thought this through, and the answer is yes, and the answer is no. It is sin if you withhold information and it causes something to be misleading. You know, you say, uh, is there, can I walk across the street here? To a blind guy, he asks you. And you say, oh, sure you can. You don't tell him a car is coming. Well, that's misleading, and he's going to get killed. You can say, yeah, you can walk across the street here. Just don't do it right now. So it would be sin to do something if it was misleading. If it will cause harm, it would be sin. And the same thing is true. The blind man gets run over, and so that would be sin in doing that. And if it distorts the truth, because we must be truthful in all the things we say, then it would be sin if we withhold information. And I want to give you an example of this so you can think it through clearly. Something that I heard on the radio a few years ago, and I could not believe that this man said it. Now, I don't know if it was James Dobson or if it was somebody like him. It was one of these Christian psychologists that has these radio station, uh, you know, radio personalities. And uh, 
he also is a pastor and he was a, a Christian counselor and all this kind of stuff. And he said that he was in his church and a, a woman came to him and she finally met Christ after sitting in church for like 20 years. She suddenly realized, I guess I need to be forgiven of my sins. So she went to confess to him and said, I've been having an affair with a man for the past 20 years. My husband doesn't know about it. And I, I, I want to know, do I need to uh, tell my husband? And his answer was yes. And I almost fell on the floor. I thought to myself, you know what? This lady is already reconciled to Jesus Christ. This guy could pull out a gun and shoot her. He could pull out a gun and shoot her entire family and his children and himself. He could go ballistic. He could have, who knows what would have happened over something that is water under the bridge. And now that sounds like a very great sin that she's committed adultery for 20 years, but she's done a thousand other things that she has not told her husband. And he has done a lot of things that she hasn't told him. Sometimes withholding information is something that we should do in order to not cause harm. And this could have caused great harm. If I was that man and she came to me, I would have said, you have told me, I'm going to recommend you don't say it, even though it's on your heart to do so. And if he ever finds out I am now a line of defense in that. I can come and say she didn't tell you even though she wanted to because it was water under the bridge with Jesus Christ. She's cleansed of that sin and I will take the responsibility for that because I have to tell you what, that could have turned out a calamity. So I want you to think about these things as you go through life. Sometimes you hear one thing and it sounds right and as the proverb says, then you hear the other side of the case and you say, now that sounds right. You got to think these issues through. So the answer is yes, and the answer is no. But whether it was out of fear or whether it was out of respect for dad, they have been mostly honest, and yet they've been circumspect in what they've shared. Most probably, they anticipated what Jacob's reaction would be concerning their youngest son, or his youngest son, Benjamin. If he knew everything that happened to them, he would be even less likely to send them with him back to Egypt. And this is exactly the bad news that they are now going to share with him. Verse 14. And bring the youngest to brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. This returns to what Joseph said to them when he told them what they were to do all the way back up in verses 15 and 16 from a week or two ago. By the life of Pharaoh, Joseph made a vow on the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. With an oath, he vowed that he, without producing Benjamin, they will be counted as spies, not as honest men. With Benjamin, they will have free access to trade. Benjamin is the key to their survival. And the same is true with Israel. Someday Israel is going to be completely isolated in the world. There will be a peace agreement and this will eventually be broken by the Antichrist. They will have no defender but the Lord and it will be when they call on him that he will return and he will fight for them. The relationship between Israel and Jesus did not end in AD 70 when the Jews' uh, temple was destroyed and they were exiled around the world. It was put on hold during their time of exile. God has and he will remain faithful to them. Reconciliation is coming between Joseph and the brothers and reconciliation is coming between Jesus and Israel. Benjamin, meaning the son of the right hand, is key to both. Our second thought today, this is verses 35 and 36, ye of little faith. 
Now I want to explain something to you from the King James Version, which uh, I decided to use that title, Ye of Little Faith. If you ever read the King James Version, I don't know if you know what the word ye means, but it means you in the plural. If you want to read the Bible and you read a modern version, it says you in singular and you in plural. So sometimes you can actually get theologically confused on what's going on because you don't have this. So that's the one thing that I really like about the King James Version, which I wish people would use in the modern versions as well, is put the plural, ye, or some other word so that we know the plural, and you. Because that'll help you actually understand the Bible much, much better. That one single word. Anyway, little squiggle for your brain on ye of little faith. Verse 35. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in a sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. The brothers already knew that the money had been returned. One of them found the money in his sack, and later, when they go back to Egypt, they're going to admit that they found all of the money in all of their sacks while they were at the camp on the first night. But you have to kind of put yourself in their place. They traveled at least a day before finding the money. They were already overdue. They traveled for probably a week to get down to Egypt. They'd been in prison for a few days, and then they're on their way back home, and they've lost another day. Do they return and repay the money, or do they go on home? And if they told their dad, no matter what they did, he would be upset. So instead of making the situation worse, either way, they continued on home and they didn't say anything about the money until they were there. Once again, is it sin to withhold information? If it will lead to somebody being harmed, if it will distort the truth in times like that, then yes, it is sin. But if you are withholding information in order to help an old man not blow a gasket that's probably a good thing to do because it's not going to affect your relationship with him or your relationship with God by withholding the minor details all right verse 36 and Jacob their father said to them you have bereaved me Joseph is no more Simeon is no more and you want to take Benjamin all of these things are against me now listen to what he said at the beginning you have bereaved me Joseph is no more Jacob seems to imply here, and we can only kind of get this from the text, he seems to imply that he knows that what happened to their brother Joseph may have been his brother's or his other son's fault. But it simply could just be that he's in his old age and his mental faculties are starting to wane down, and so he's a little bit confused. Whatever his state, though, he now demonstrates a continued lack of faith. The mortal flesh and blood man has forgotten about God's sovereignty. And so he cries out, Alai hayu hulana. All of these things are against me. The Latin Vulgate translates it this way. All these evils fall back upon me. It is to him as if the weight of each bad thing has been heaped right back onto his shoulders until the strain has become an unbearable load which will eventually crush him. Jacob, not his brother Esau, is the covenant son. Regardless of what happens, God is in control of his past, his present, and his future. The Lord has appeared to him personally several times and has made unconditional assurances to him. The last time God spoke to him directly was when he returned to Bethel. Remember, he was up in Mesopotamia for many, many years. He comes down. He fights with the Lord on the Jabbok River. He talks to him a couple of times. And the last time that he talked to him were these trustworthy words. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants after you. 
I give this land. After that, Joseph had his two dreams, which shows that the Lord is with Joseph as well. And they show him very clearly that that is the case. Joseph has dreams that say something about the future, so he should be able to put two and two together, and he's not doing it. Jacob has forgotten about that. Since then, as far as the Bible records, the Lord has remained completely silent. Jacob has taken this silence as abandonment. But this is the last thing that has that could happen or that would ever potentially be possible. The Lord will never abandon Jacob. The very things that he feel are, feels are against him, every one of those things that he has mentioned are actually being worked out for him. Joseph's removal from his life seems to be an evil that God allowed to weigh him down. Instead, God has used that to bring Joseph into the only land which could save them during the famine. He then brought him to the only place where he could be secure from the executioner because the one he worked for was the executioner. In that house, he was falsely accused and he was placed in a special prison where the king's prisoners would be kept. God, not man, gave the king's prisoners dreams. God, not man, gave Joseph the wisdom to interpret those dreams. God, not man, gave Pharaoh his own dreams. And again, it was God who directed that it would occur in the presence of the once imprisoned cupbearer who then told Pharaoh about Joseph. Again, it was God who gave Joseph the ability to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and gave him the wisdom which brought him to the second position in all of the land of Egypt. God directed the famine which made it necessary for the sons of Israel to journey to Egypt. And of all of the city storehouses in all of Egypt, God led the sons of Israel to the one where Joseph was at on a day that he would be working. And the brothers' time in prison then allowed them time to reflect on their own consciences to the extent that they would feel remorse over their treatment of their brother from 20 years earlier. The continued duration of the famine, which came about by God, will eventually necessitate a second trip to Egypt with Benjamin and the events which will lead to reconciliation and the safety of all of Israel. All 11 brothers are going to come back. They're going to bow down before Joseph. Amends are going to be made and the family will be saved. Every single detail is being worked out for good, but Jacob only sees the evil because he only sees it from his perspective. Since his dream at Bethel, when he fled from his brother Esau, the Lord has always been with him, but all of that is forgotten in the misery since Rachel's death. And isn't that exactly, and I mean exactly, what we see in Israel, the people, since the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God, I'm going to take you on a little journey back through some of the things we've looked at in the past. Rachel, if you remember her name, Rachel, it means lamb. It's the exact same word used to speak of Jesus in Isaiah 53. Here's what it says. Yet he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep, a Rachel, before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. For the past 2,000 years since the death of the Lamb, Jesus, and think of Joseph being sold off, think of Jesus, Israel has gone from one calamity to another. It's as if everything was against them, but for every single calamity, God has been there, and he has been working to bring them to reunion with their king. He gave them safety in one land after another. As soon as some land starts to 
punish and persecute the Jews, God finds a new haven for them. And that led right up to America. And then he finally brought them home to their own promised land. So what I did is I went back and I looked at all of the things that have happened since the death of Rachel, directly with Jacob. <coughs> Seven things. Reuben, his oldest son, slept with his concubine Bilhah. The second, his father Isaac died. Third, Joseph had strange dreams, one showing that his father would bow down to him. Four, Joseph was supposedly killed. Five, a famine comes upon the land. Six, Simeon is taken from him during the trip to Egypt. And seven, Benjamin is now expected to be taken from him to Egypt. These seven things are almost a snapshot of Israel since the death of Jesus. First, Reuben sleeps with Bilhah. Her name means troubled. And if you remember from that sermon all that time ago, it is carried over in the New Testament to the book of Corinthians where the word Belial is used, means wicked. If you remember, she pictured, this second concubine of uh, Jacob actually pictures the second uh, exile of the people of Israel. If you saw those sermons, then you know how clear that was. All right, Israel unites during that second exile, not with Christ, but with Belial. If that sounds harsh, listen to Jesus' words in Revelation 3, verse 9, which are written about Israel's time during the church age, Israel right now. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So you see the parallel right there. Next, Isaac dies. Isaac means laughter. The laughter is gone from Israel. For the past 2,000 years. Next, Joseph had his dreams about his brothers bowing down to him. As he pictures Jesus Christ, and we've already seen this, someday Jesus' brothers will bow down to him. After that, Joseph is supposedly killed and lost to Jacob, but he's actually sold off by his brothers to the Gentiles. Jesus was killed and supposedly lost, but instead he was sold off to the Gentiles. Following that, a time of famine comes upon the land. And we saw very clearly in that sermon that the famine pictures the famine of the word of God for the world of the end times. Sometime after the rapture, the Bible is going to be very, very scarce. Next, Simeon was bound up. His name means he who hears. In Israel, and I mean to this day, anyone who would otherwise hear is bound up from their brothers. Even today, and I know this because I witnessed to a Jewish guy just a few weeks ago, and his answer was, I can't become a Christian because I want to remain a Jew. Jewish people are taught you cannot be a Jew if you're a Christian. You can be a Buddhist. You can be a non-believer, a secular Jew. You can be a Muslim. You can be a Hindu. You can be whatever you want, and you get to remain a Jew. But should you convert to the truth of God in Jesus Christ, you're shunned from the collective whole. Now Benjamin is set to be taken to Egypt. Jacob doesn't understand that every single thing so far that has happened is for God's good end. And Israel is just like them. They cannot see the truth of what is going on around them. All they can see is the trouble, not the, not the plan of God. And it is that reason, exactly that reason, that they're now making a peace deal in Israel. The Bible says that it's going to be made by the Antichrist with the people and halfway through the duration of this peace deal, he's going to break that covenant with them. And it's going to usher in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period where the world is going to destroy itself. And it's all being pictured in what we're looking at right now. None of this is stretching the picture at all, which is presented in Genesis. So far, this book has consistently shown us of things which have happened, but which things 
are going to again happen. Every story has been selected by the wisdom of God to show us this exceptional, exceptional tapestry of human history. Every name, every location, every number, every detail has showed us more about this heavenly drama which is being worked out in our earthly existence. It is the epitome of beauty and the greatest exhibition of love that we could possibly imagine. Love for Jew and love for Gentile. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? It is only through his wondrous, marvelous word that we can understand what for us he has in store. Our third thought today, not thinking clearly in the land of Canaan. Our last two verses of the day. Verse 37, then Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Reuben is the same son who tried to save Joseph from being killed by his brothers, hoping eventually to get him back to his father Jacob. Now he's actually probably more concerned with getting Simeon released from prison in Egypt than he is about anything else. Reuben is the oldest and Simeon is the next oldest by birth and he is also the full brother of Reuben. In his desire to get him back, he knew that he had to take Benjamin to Egypt and in order to do that, he makes this incredulous offer. If I don't bring him back, you can kill two of my sons. First, he knows that Jacob will not kill his own grandsons even if he fails. Secondly, even if he did fail, he wouldn't be coming back either because they were already threatened under an oath to be proven faithful or they'd be counted as spies, and that would mean the death sentence. And so thirdly, he makes this offer, not with the intent of it being carried out, but with the surety that he will perform what he has spoken. It is his promise that Benjamin would be brought back safely. This offer is one of guarantee, but not one of reality. Verse 38, but he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring my bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Jacob is not ready to let him go. The famine hasn't taken his toll. The missing son is not as great a concern as the one he has. He thinks a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. The time has not reached its fullness. He believes Joseph is dead and so to him, he is dead, even though he's alive. And so only Benjamin is there to remind him of his beloved wife, Rachel. The fear of Jacob is tied up in his lack of faith in the promises of God. He is not thinking clearly in the land of Canaan, and he is worried about his life, not about what the future is promised to hold. And so here, in the troubled Jacob is a picture of you and of me and of any given moment of weakness when we forget God's promises to us. When we as Christians see God's hand at work in an evident way, woohoo! I mean, really, we, that's what we say. God is right here with me. When the blessings and the good times come, we know that it's God. And when those around us who we love are happy and healthy, we're there quick to praise him and to admit his presence and his favor in our lives. He's right there with us. But when things fall apart, we start to question his goodness. What we need to do is to continue to trust him through those times. And that's a lot easier said than done, but it is possible. It's good to just keep reminding ourselves that what we might see as God's severity towards us may actually be his kindness. If we know with certainty, with absolute certainty in our bones, that it is impossible for God to be the cause of or the author of evil, then just because something appears evil, which is from God, 
it cannot be evil. Joseph was taken from Jacob, and Jacob certainly thought that was evil. But from whose perspective? If a brother, a sister, or a child dies, we might call that evil. Why did God allow this terrible thing to happen to us? But again, is it evil, or are we not simply seeing the whole picture? God's goodness cannot be on trial, and so our understanding of the situation and resentment towards him, it must be wrong. Listen to the words that Job speaks. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. For he repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Now, this doesn't mean that there isn't wickedness, but that the wickedness has no power to triumph over the good. Proof of that is evident anytime we look at the cross. Here was this beautiful little baby in a manger, born without sin. He was born without all of the faults that the rest of us are born with. There was the law that he was born under, which pointed out our faults even more, and which only increased his radiant perfection. There were the hungry that he fed and the sick that he healed. He taught people and freed others from every possible thing that bound them. And yet he, this marvelous person, was rejected, abandoned, and tortured. And then he was crucified. Was that wicked? The biblical answer is yes. And the biblical answer is no. The Bible says in one verse that the answer is yes and no. Here is Peter in Acts 2.23, speaking of Jesus. Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. Lawless hands crucified Christ. That was wicked, but it was done by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. That was good. From Mary's perspective, as she stood looking at her son bleeding and dying, this was indeed wickedness. But from Mary's perspective, when she later realized that his death is what washed away her lifetime of sin, she saw something entirely different, didn't she? She saw wickedness and she saw majesty in one defining act. Let's try to look at the whole picture when we see what God is doing in our lives. How is it that our faith, after being encouraged so many times through acts of God's love towards us, can be so immensely frail? How can our understanding of him even after having the entire plan of the Bible laid out in front of us, how can it still be so unsure and so wavering? And how imperfect is our resolve to stand and say, I know that all things, in fact, do work together for good because I love God and I am called according to his purpose. Why is my trust of him only when I see him, but when I'm in the darkest valley, I suddenly think he's departed from me? like Jacob has in these verses. Why is that? When the apostles, they were out on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, they got into a little bit of a patch, didn't they? Here's what that says. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out, but as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. 
Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? These guys had already seen lepers that were cleansed, paralytics healed, and evil spirits cast out. They'd seen power radiating from him as he healed the multitudes. They'd even seen a widow's only son raised to life as he was being carried out to his burial. And yet, despite the calling, despite the wisdom in his teachings and the explanation of kingdom matters, which, by the way, included them, despite the miracles, despite the power, they lost their faith as they were tossed about on the sea. Our sea of life is one of high waves and overflow of burdens, just like that water lapping into the boat, ready to sink them. But he asks us to trust him through it all, to have a little bit of faith, even the faith of a mustard seed. Let's endeavor to do this and not be like Jacob, who had personally, personally seen the Lord and yet allowed his own miseries to overcome the faith that he should have possessed. Every week I give a call for people to receive what they had never received before, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But today, maybe you need to receive what you once possessed and have now lost. If you need Jesus, I would ask that you call out to him Ask him to pardon you of your sins and be reconciled to God and free from what condemns. But if you need to renew your walk with him, call out to him and let him know that. Redirect yourself to him and he will bind up your wounds. Have faith in this wonderful Lord who walked on water and who died and rose again for you and me. Our closing verse today is from James chapter 1. Listen to these beautiful words of James. My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. You have trials, count it joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Wonderful. Next week, we're going to look at Genesis 43. It's going to be the first 14 verses, a difficult decision for Israel. That'll be our 107th Genesis sermon. And I'll remind you as I do each and every week, fits perfectly with what we just talked about. The Lord has you exactly, exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things both for you and through you. Now I have a poem today based on the verses that we looked at as I always do. This is called, Where is God in all of this? Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and him they told all that had happened to them, all the bother, saying the circumstances of our journey were uncontrolled. The man who is lord of the land, he surely spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. It was a bad situation we now discuss. But we said to him in an attempt to subdue, we are honest men, we are not spies. We are speaking the truth to you. This is honesty from our lips, not lies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father, we say. One is no more from us, he is gone. And the youngest was with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Our words you can count on. Then the man, the lord of the country, said to us, by this I will know, that you are honest men. Thus I will see if the words you have spoken are so. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take for your households food for the famine. And be gone off to Canaan except one detainee. Later, the truth of your words I will examine and bring your youngest brother to me 
so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men speaking plainly. I will know your words are truth and not lies. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land, after I know that your words are true and you have not dishonestly planned. Then it happened as they, their sacks they poured out that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack, which without a doubt to them, which was something not very funny. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid it was much bother and life wasn't looking really very sunny. And Jacob, their father said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin too, I see. All of these things, all of them are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you as you are praying back to this place. Yes, this very spot. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. This is the thing, father, I have committed to do. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone. This idea is shoe. Does this even really need to be said? If any calamity should befall him there along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. I would perish in woe. Jacob's faith was lacking at this time, and it seems to us more than odd that a man who had spoken to the Lord would waver in his faith in God. But he is a flesh and blood man. He is a human like any of us. We drown in sorrows when we lose sight of the plan which God has revealed in the Lord Jesus. Help us, O oh God, to keep our eyes directed to you, even in the darkest valley that you are there. You are our faith, faithful protector. Yes, we know it's true. And in your hand is our every woe and care. Thank you. Thank you, O oh God, for your sufficient grace. Thank you for your guiding light of love. You will surely carry us to your glorious place, to the new Jerusalem in the heavens above. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lessons that we can learn from a man who had wrestled with you by the river and who had spoken to you personally and yet his faith wavered. Thank you that we can look at that and say, I'm not going to let that happen to me. I have the whole plan of the Bible laid out before me and I am included in its pages because I belong to Jesus Christ and nothing, nothing can take that away. No matter what happens to me, whether I lose a leg in an accident today or whether I lose my entire family, I'm taken from them by some catastrophe. Whatever it is, nothing can separate me from you and the promises that you have to carry me to your eternal dwelling and a life of eternal blessing from your open hand. I would ask that any person here that's struggling with life right now, and I'm sure every one of them is, that you would help them to understand that these things are actually being worked out. They don't see it from their perspective, but you do from yours. They are being worked out for their good and for your glory. So help us to see this. Help us to perceive it and to never stop talking to you and to keep that line of communication going, which seems to have happened in the life of Jacob. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the chance to come together and worship you and to hear your words spoken, the fellowship with others. We thank you for all of these things, and we do so in the exalted name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen.